This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. This is the final chapter of the Gospel of John, and we will be looking at it tonight in its entirety. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself, and in this way, he showed himself Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. And as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, 
When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who, is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would see the glory of Christ, who has been raised from the dead, who has now ascended on high, and who has given life and salvation to his people, even as we see tonight how he restores Peter after his denials and after his uh, great sin and failure. Father, I pray that this would give us hope and give us the confidence that you will forgive us of our sins if we so seek your forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come tonight to the end of the Gospel of John, the 21st and final chapter. Now this chapter is something of an epilogue, a final note on final matters. The last chapter documented Jesus' resurrection and his initial appearances to his disciples and concluded with John's purpose statement and why John reported the things that he did, which was so that those who heard him might believe. But now in chapter 21, John provides one more account of one more appearing. Now, in a sense, it does serve the same purpose as the others. It is recorded so that the readers and hearers of John's gospel might believe. But something about this one is a little different. It is more personal. And particularly, it ties up an important loose end, that being the status of Peter, who on the night of Jesus' suffering and betrayal denied Jesus three times. Now, Jesus had appeared to his disciples already in peace, almost all of them having fallen away that night, not just Peter. And Peter was among them, and it seems that Jesus restored and commissioned them all for the service of building the church. So in a sense, Peter was already restored. He was already back in good graces. And yet something about these previous appearances was 
kind of impersonal. The disciples were there locked up in the room and Jesus appears to them for what appears to be a brief time and then is gone again. Yet this last account of an appearing is different. In it, Jesus comes and dwells with and teaches his disciples once more, just as he did before. And he will deal more fully and clearly with the matter of Peter. For Peter will, after all, go on to serve as something of a leader, something of a first among equals of the disciples who build the church in the book of Acts. It will be Peter, for instance, who gives that first sermon at Pentecost. Peter sort of serves as the moderator of the presbytery, if you will. It will be Peter again who gives that sermon. It will be Peter who first comes to Samaria and Caesarea to receive the Samaritans and Gentiles into the church. So part of this chapter is to demonstrate how specifically Christ restores Peter for the work to come. But this text is also to serve as a parting reminder to all of Jesus' disciples of what all of them are called to do. Jesus prepares to depart in a similar way to how he came to them once before. Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 recorded that Jesus came to the disciples who were fishing at the sea to call them into his service. Prior to their life and service with Jesus, they were fishermen. And then there Jesus provided them with a miraculous catch of fish, after which he commissioned them to follow him and to catch men. That was Peter, James, and John. And yet here at the end of John, we seemingly have history repeating itself. Things have come full circle. For Jesus once again comes to his disciples fishing at the sea and commissions them to be fishers of men, though this time it will be in his absence. And so we will look at this recommissioning of Peter and the other disciples tonight in three points. First, there is a reappearing in verses 1 through 7. Jesus comes to the disciples and again provides them a miraculous catch. And then second, a restoration in verses 8 through 17. We see that Jesus again calls Peter to the work of his service. And third, we see Revelation in verses 18 through 25. Jesus tells Peter and John of things that are to come. So reappearing, restoration, and revelation. So first we have a reappearing in verses 1 through 7. So John adds after his purpose statement at the end of chapter 20, this one more account where Jesus shows himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or also known as the Sea of Galilee. Now this transition, this additional account after what seemed like it could have been such a good ending to the book has caused some modern Bible scholars, as modern Bible scholars often want to do, to question the originality and authenticity of this final chapter. But there's nothing in the text or nothing in the historical record that indicates that this text was ever not a part of the Gospel of John. It could be that as the Holy Spirit worked through human agents in writing the scriptures, that maybe John stopped writing and then he came back later to add this one more account. Hard to tell. We don't know for sure. 
But the story is consistent with John's other writing, and there's no reason to doubt that it belongs in the book or particularly here at its end. But as John begins this account from the sea, he lists the particular disciples involved. So there is Peter, there is Thomas, who, remember, was in our last passage uh, particularly chided for his doubts. There is Nathaniel. There's the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, the author, and then two other unnamed disciples. The events begin with Peter deciding that he was going fishing. Now, many treat this action on the part of Peter, this decision to go fishing, as something of a lapse, something of a return to his former life. Peter and his group, they were fishermen before, and some suggest that after his denial... Peter either doesn't know where he stands or he assumed that he would not be a part of what's to come because of his denials of Jesus. And so he's just going to go back to his old job and take up fishing again. Now, that could be possible, but I think that's to say too much. Again, Peter was there already when the disciples gathered and Jesus breathed on them and commissioned them for the work. Now, it's very probable that Peter had some lingering doubts that Jesus is going to address later in this chapter. But as far as the fishing, there was nothing wrong with them deciding to go fishing. They had to eat, meant they had to do some kind of work to obtain food and money. At this point, there's no church. They hadn't yet been given their orders, their work to do for building the church. There would be no provision for its ministers, of which these apostles would be the first. So they had to work and they had to eat somehow. They were not yet enabled or empowered to do the public ministry they had been called to. That would not begin until after Jesus had ascended and the Spirit came on them in a new power and glory at Pentecost. So while they were waiting for all of that, there's no reason why they couldn't go fishing. Also a fact that a majority of the disciples, that is, seven of the remaining eleven, go fishing shows that it wasn't really something frowned upon. It wasn't something that anyone had a problem with doing. What does happen, however, when they go is that the fishing is bad. Been there, done that. It seems they do their fishing at night, depending on where you're at, what kind of fish you're out to catch. Nighttime may be the best time to do it. Of course, that night was terrible. They were out all night, dragging their nets all over this lake, and they caught nothing. So the morning comes, and someone who they don't quite recognize is standing at a distance on the shore. He yells out to them, "'Children, have you any food?' Now, this word here, children, could also be translated as lads or boys or even young men. So as far as they know, he's just any man calling out to a group of younger men who are fishing to see if they've caught anything, which no, they haven't, and they say so. So Jesus, though remember they don't know it's Jesus, tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Now, given that they do not recognize that it is Jesus, it is fascinating that they listen. Maybe they figure, well, we've tried everything else, why not? 
Or maybe at this moment they start to realize it's Jesus because back in Luke 5, Jesus had done this once before, told them to cast their nets on the other side, and then they caught fish. Maybe that jarred their memories. But for whatever reason, they do toss their net on the other side of the boat, and suddenly their net is so full of fish, they can't even bring it in. Well, John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, though he never names himself in this gospel, has figured out it's Jesus that's there. And he's miraculously given them this catch of fish, just as he did before. And he tells Peter, it is the Lord. And so Peter, now realizing this in the midst of this large catch of fish, decides that he's out. He puts his outer garment on. He'd been working so hard, he'd taken it off, and then just jumps right into the sea and swims to the shore. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to talk to Jesus. And so he, with reckless abandon, leaves just as he once did before in Luke 5, for he wants to go where Jesus calls. But after this reappearing of Jesus, we come to the restoration in verses 8 through 17. So after Peter abandons the others, they manage to wrangle the boat in this miraculous catch of 153 large fish to the shore. Now note how John is again recording minute details down to the count of fish. Again, if this story was being made up, if it were some kind of non-historical myth or story, as many modern critics like to assert, why record the number of fish? It seems like that's the kind of detail you record when you were there and it really happened. He also recorded the distance they were from the shore. Again, a real detail of a real event. They were about 200 cubits away, so about 300 feet, about 100 yards roughly from the shore. Again, a real detail because this is a true account. Well, they get to the shore and Jesus already has camp set up. He was expecting them. He had a fire going. He had some bread and some fish of his own. Now, to reiterate a point made before, Jesus was raised in his body. He's engaging in physical activities to sustain physical life. Many errors and heresies abound about how Jesus was not raised bodily. Some say that he was only raised spiritually as some sort of ghostly or angelic figure. Later, liberal theologians talk about Jesus' resurrection as just some idea in the hearts and minds of his followers. Well, that's all easily disregarded and preempted if people would just read and believe the text. Jesus was raised as a man in a body, building fires, cooking, eating, drinking. And Jesus asks them to bring some of the fish they just caught and add it to the fire. Peter helps to bring the net in. Note how the story remains focused on Peter. This is really his moment. Now we also observe here a miracle within a miracle. The net was not broken. The fact that John, himself a fisherman by trade, notes this means that one would expect such a large catch of fish to possibly break the nets. 
Yet Jesus, by his power, lets the net be sufficient for the task. And Jesus invites his disciples to come and eat breakfast. And it is noted here that at this point, no one has to ask who he is. They all know that Jesus is with them. Now, this includes some, like Thomas, who had previously been inclined to doubt. But all were now aware and believing and certain that Jesus had been raised and now again walked among them. Jesus then, in verse 13, came to them and gave them bread and fish. Again, physical acts of a physical man in a physical body. John makes a note in verse 14 that this was the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead, following those two accounts in the previous chapter. But this appearance has a particular purpose to address a particular matter, the matter of Peter's previous denial and now his restoration. Again, while Jesus had appeared to Peter along with the other disciples these previous times, there hadn't really been any word or any discussion on what happened to Peter because of his denials. So Peter seemed to still have some lingering doubts. He wanted and needed closure. Maybe at the very least, he wanted to say that he was sorry. Maybe that's why he bailed off the boat and swam to the shore when he realized Jesus was there. Now recall that Peter denied Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' trial. First to the servant girl who kept the door at the high priest's residence, then to those gathered at the fire at the trial, and then finally to a relative of Malchus, that man whom Peter had assaulted in the garden and cut off his ear. And then just as Jesus had prophesied, after that third denial, the rooster crowed. So what is going to wash away the stain and stench of these three denials? Well, after they ate this breakfast together, Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for him. Now here they are. They're seated around a fire. It wouldn't be a scene all that different from that night where Peter denied Jesus, he was in the high priest's courtyard. They were gathered around a fire, and it was there that they would ask Peter if he knew Jesus, and he said no. But at this fire on this morning, Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me more than these? Now the these are the other men there. It was Peter's fear of men that had led him into sin and denial of Christ that night. But Jesus now gives Peter the opportunity to renounce this sin, to renounce the fear of men, the excessive care for the opinions of men. For this was Peter's idol. This was Peter's sin. This is what caused him to turn aside from Christ. And Peter does. He answers, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. This is all true. Jesus knows that Peter hated what he had done in denying Christ. He knew his contrite and repentant heart. And yet for Peter's sake and for the sake of the other disciples, so that they might see Peter's particular repentance and Jesus' forgiveness of him, and for our sake, so that we might read and hear it, Jesus does subject Peter to this questioning. 
so he might again affirm his love for Christ. And that is what Jesus' response does. It restores him and it commissions him to the office for the building of the church that is to come. He says, feed my lambs. Jesus is giving Peter the office of a shepherd, the office of a pastor in his church. Peter and the other apostles will be responsible in the days and months and years to come to feed the sheep. Those people Christ will draw to himself with the food of the word of God. But we still only have a single affirmation thus far in response to a threefold denial. So Jesus asks again in verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter responds with that same response. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responds with a similar but slightly different response. He says, tend my sheep. So in each of these responses, you get different aspects of the task and office to which Jesus is calling Peter. He is to feed, and then he is to tend or to shepherd. Feed the word and provide guidance and help and care to Christ's sheep. But we're still only at two affirmations in the face of three denials. So one more time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And this is where it seems to hit Peter. We read that he was grieved at the third question. Maybe it is at this moment that it hits him. This is happening because he denied Jesus three times. Or at least the grief that he had denied Jesus those times washed over him anew. And yet he answers again, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus responds again, similarly mixing the words of the previous two responses. He uses the word for feed from the first response and the word for sheep from the second. So in a way, it denotes the comprehensiveness of this commission, all the shepherding and feeding for all of Christ's sheep. But after this third affirmation, Jesus reveals to Peter more things that are to come. And this brings us to our third and final point. After the reappearing and the restoration, we come to Revelation in verses 18 through 25. In verse 18, after the third charge to Peter to feed the sheep, he tells Peter his past and his future. He uses the most assuredly in Greek, the amen, amen. So speaking with emphasis on the absolute certainty of what he's about to say. He tells Peter that when he was younger, he girded himself and walked where he wished. In other words, before now, Peter was free. He lived for himself. He lived for his own things. He had an easy life, an untroubled life. He was just another fisherman doing fisherman things. But the future was going to be quite different. Jesus tells him, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. In other words, Peter's future life will be one of hardship, one of persecution, one of suffering and of death. 
John notes this at the beginning of verse 19, that Jesus was describing Peter's future death. Early church historians record that Peter died by being crucified upside down. He thought himself unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So when he was condemned to be crucified, he asked for it to be done upside down, which would have made for all the more cruel and horrific of a death. And what does this tell us about Peter? Just days prior, he was too scared to even acknowledge knowing and having been with Jesus. But the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter will enact so substantial of a change that Peter will be one willing to suffer and bleed and die for the name of Christ. And after this, Jesus says to Peter the same thing he would have said back when he called the disciples at the beginning, follow me. We have come full circle. As it was, so it is again. As Jesus once called his disciples to follow him, he again calls and commissions Peter into his service. But before we leave, we get one final note on John. Peter, now following Jesus, turns around and sees John following as well. Now John again goes to great lengths to avoid naming himself, just indicating again that he was the disciple who Jesus loved, the one who had reclined on Jesus at the supper and asked who would betray him. So Peter, seeing that John is still there and following, he asks about John. We don't know exactly why he asks. Maybe he wonders why, since Jesus clearly loved John in a special way, why was Jesus now so focused on Peter? Or perhaps Peter is again having a slight lapse of worrying about other people more than Jesus. But Jesus is not hearing this from Peter. He replies, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus had just told Peter about how he would suffer and die for Christ. That was his purpose. That was his calling. It would be his purpose and calling regardless of the purpose and calling of anyone else. If Peter was to die and John was to live forever... That was up to Jesus, not to him. Each disciple of Christ has their own purpose and calling in this life to fulfill. For these apostles, they would build and shepherd the church and they would pass it on to other shepherds who would do likewise. Each would follow a different course. Peter would find his way to Rome and die a martyr's death there. John would himself face persecution, though, according to the history and tradition of the church. He, unlike the other disciples, actually lived to be an old man. He died a natural death, spent most of his later life ministering in Ephesus. So Jesus' point to Peter is a point to all of us. You follow me. You concern yourself with what I have called you to do, not what other people are doing or not doing. So this challenges all of us. 
We are all far too inclined to look at other people, compare ourselves to others, to covet what other people have and what other people can do. We are each, as members of Christ's body, given a place, given a function, given a job to do within Christ's kingdom. It may be ministry or missions. It may be faithfulness in the ordinary things. It may be to face persecution or suffering. But in all cases, the fundamental call is the same. We are to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Now, John here notes that from Jesus' words, some thought that he would never die. This apparently became a rumor, a myth, a legend in the early church. John himself didn't believe that. Here he was writing this gospel, probably near the end of his life, and realizing, yeah, I'm going to die. And no, that's not what Jesus meant. But John also inserts his final comments. That same disciple who Jesus loved was the same disciple who wrote this book. John was there. He saw it. He knows it's true. Though he adds this final note that Jesus did many other things which the world itself could not contain the books if they were all written down. We see here almost an echo of the last chapter. There were lots of other things Jesus said and did, but we have the ones that we do for a particular purpose, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing that we would have life in his name. And, as we come to the end of John's Gospel, that is the point. That is what this has all been about. And that remains the question of all questions. Having heard these words, having seen what John has written, that Jesus is the Son of God, all the things he did, all the truths he taught, do you believe so that you may have life in his name? All the way back at the beginning in chapter 1, John wrote that to those who received him, Jesus, the word who became flesh, Those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16 said that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. We saw in this book what Jesus did. The redemption he accomplished for his people by his perfect life and suffering death. We see that he saved sinners. We have seen tonight how Jesus forgave and restored Peter, even as Peter denied Jesus in the hour of greatest need and of greatest trouble. Christ's grace, if it is sufficient for Peter, is sufficient for you. And so, do you believe? Have you believed in Jesus so that by believing you may have life in his name? Will you follow him wherever he calls you, wherever he leads you? For that is the call of the gospel as this gospel ends. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word your word which has been recorded and preserved for us so that we might believe. 
I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe that they would have the hope and the comfort of the salvation that has come in our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would all recognize that your grace is sufficient for us just as it was for Peter, that though our sins are great, your mercy is greater. And I pray that we would rest on and hope in your salvation. And I pray that as we go into the world, we would be faithful to follow you in whatever you have called us to do, whatever that work may be. And we pray that all that we do would honor and glorify you and illuminate the world with your gospel hope and gospel truth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.